All right, I'm going to start a new book today. First Peter, let's turn to First Peter. Now we learned a lot about Peter in our, was it a three and a half year study of Matthew? Wow. One of the, th- the neat things about Peter, he was one of the first disciples to be called by Jesus was Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and Andrew, his brother, uh, were fishermen, as were John and James. They had their own fishing businesses. And yet when Jesus called them to come and follow him, we're told in the Gospels, they immediately dropped their nets and followed Jesus. Peter and Andrew, James and John. Peter was one of the first and he walked away from his trade without hesitation. So, I mean, there's a lot about things about Peter that we learn in the Gospels that, um, you know, we might say, well, he was kind of brash, he was impetuous, impulsive, maybe even a little rude, maybe he was just kind of a, I mean, he was a blue-collar worker. He was a fisherman. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't from the upper class. But he immediately exhibited a powerful faith in Christ by being willing to walk away from everything to follow Jesus. Jesus wound up making his base of operations uh, in Galilee, in uh, Capernaum, and the home of Peter. That became Jesus' home away from home. Peter was the only one who even attempted to walk on water, and he was briefly successful. He was adventurous. He was... Brave and bold. You know, there were, he probably got some of the strongest rebuke from Jesus, like, get thee behind me, Satan. But at the same time, he was the one who defended Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, whipped out his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, remember? So Peter's an extremely interesting character, uh, rather uh, dramatic, flamboyant character in a way. But then something happened. He stood up in Acts chapter 1 and uh, took the leadership of the band of believers and um, helped them select Matthias as a replacement disciple, which we know Matthias didn't go on to play a significant role, but we shared last week that he was also one who went forth in fulfillment of the Great Commission. He was a martyr like the other apostles. But in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 in the upper room. And Peter addressed the crowd to explain what was happening. It was a fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Joel, of the outpouring of God's Spirit on all flesh in the last days. So when we talk about the last days, the last days began 2,000 years ago on Pentecost. And yet they are the last days, which means sooner or later. We saw last week how Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. We are in the last of the last days now. But Peter gave a very effective evangelistic message. Very powerful, spirit-filled, and 3,000 people accepted Christ that day. So we had the joyous privilege of watching Peter grow, mature, and turn into a powerful apostle 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by the time he writes his book, he exhibits an incredible amount of wisdom, maturity, and insight to impart to us. Only two letters, First and Second Peter, we know Paul was the most prolific of all the New Testament writers. Although we do attribute the Gospel of Mark to Peter, we believe that Mark basically wrote down Peter's words and the Gospel is named after Mark, but it's really Peter's version of the, the earthly life of Christ. So we have Mark's Gospel, we have First and Second Peter, but I'll tell you what, when we get to heaven, I'm sure we're going to have some very interesting and amazing conversations with Peter. So this book was written, obviously, by Peter. There are always some so-called scholars that want to debate the authenticity of the authorship of various books in the Bible. But uh, the Council of Nicaea, around 300 A.D., got together and they decided which books would be included, which books were canonical, which means they were accepted as being inspired scripture. There are many other extemporaneous writings that are interesting but are not recognized as inspired. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. And so what we have in the Old and New Testament are the books that were determined by the Council of Nicaea to be canonical, to be God-breathed. And rather than constantly looking for potential errors or uh, debating about who wrote what, we, I accept that these men did their job well and there's ample evidence that they did. So this is Peter's book. And he wrote it primarily to Gentile believers, interestingly enough, in the region of Asia Minor, which is... Uh, more in that area today we identify as Turkey. We've talked about that before, that region of the uh, eastern Mediterranean. In 1 Peter 1.6, uh, he's writing to these believers who are enduring a great deal of suffering, enduring a great deal of suffering and trials. 1 Peter 1.6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. In 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. And so he's trying to encourage these believers who are struggling, they're suffering, they're enduring trials and persecution. Now this was not because of an empire, Roman Empire-wide ban on Christianity. That would come a little bit later after this writing. But the sufferings Peter's referring to in his epistle are the ones that uh, often come to Christians living in a pagan, hostile society. Does that sound familiar? We should really be able to relate and identify because we are now, unfortunately, are living in a pagan, hostile society. Although the majority of Americans, in a ver very generic sense, identify themselves as believers in God and even as Christians, another uh, article that I read here just the other day a uh, gentleman did quite a bit of research on who has a true biblical worldview. And he determined that although 70-some-odd percent of Americans claim to be Christians, would you say 70% of the people you work with are Christians? Or in your neighborhood? No. But 70-some-odd percent of Americans, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. 
But he said his studies revealed that only 10% of the American populace holds to a truly biblical worldview. That means your worldview is interpreted by the truth of God's word. We talk about that a lot around here, don't we? Only 10%. So if 90% of people in our country do not hold to a true biblical worldview, that tells me we're in pretty much the same boat as these believers in Asia Minor were when Peter wrote to them. They were experiencing the sufferings that often come to Christians living in a pagan, hostile society. Uh, Persecutions came to them in the form of slander, riots, local police action, and social rejection. Again, does this sound familiar? (laughs) But Peter, in this epistle, encourages these suffering believers to rejoice and live above the circumstances. And you've probably heard me say this before, but you'll often hear people say, well, hey man, how you doing? How's it going? Well, not too bad under the circumstances. And then I would say, what are you doing under there? The Bible says we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We should be living above the circumstances. And that's what Peter encourages these believers to do. Now, it's interesting. Peter says that he, he's writing this from Babylon. 1 Peter 5.13, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. We mentioned how Mark's gospel was Peter's gospel. Uh, even as Paul referred to Timothy as his son in the faith. Peter does likewise with Mark. Mark has this father-son relationship with Peter. This is a code that Peter is using. She who is in Babylon means the church in Rome. Peter spent his later years in Rome, although he really is not the first pope. Because there really is no pope. I mean, the Pope is a man-made office and title. It wasn't established by God. God never said, let there be a Pope. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to offend Catholics. But one thing I've noticed, that even the Catholics don't care much for this most recent Pope. That's how um, (laughs) Inspector Clouseau would say it. Pope. The Pope. Anyway, Peter wasn't the first Pope, but I'm sure he's glad. This is the church in Rome. Babylon was a symbolic name for Rome, often used by writers who were trying to avoid trouble with the Roman authorities. Again, Peter was in Rome during the last decade of his life, and he wrote this epistle around A.D. 63, just before the outbreak of Nero's persecution. You remember Nero, right? He was the one who dipped Christians in tar, nailed them to the cross, and set them on fire. And Peter was martyred. Nero's persecution began in A.D. 64, about a year after this epistle was written, and Peter was martyred around 67 A.D., so about four years after he wrote this epistle. He gives us the theme of his epistle in chapter 5, verse 12, the true grace of God in the life of a believer. He, he uses the word grace, which is God's unmerited favor. He uses the word grace ten times in this book. In this opening section of First Peter, which we will undoubtedly crawl our way through. 
uh, he introduces the doctrine of salvation. It's developed in a very rich and beautiful way here. So let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. Thank you for Peter. What an awesome guy. And we identify with him in his weaknesses and his frailties. And we're inspired by his strengths. And we are inspired by what became of him as he was filled with the Holy Spirit became a mighty apostle, a mighty evangelist for the kingdom of God. So we ask your blessing upon this new study in the book of 1 Peter, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Peter, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I'm going to read from three more different translations because this pilgrims of the dispersion At first reading, it almost sounds like he's talking about Jews because the Jews were dispersed. Hence, we have the term diaspora. The diaspora refers to the dispersion of Jews all over the world when they were run out, cast out of their own nation on more than one occasion. King James Version, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. New American Standard Bible. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Finally, the NIV. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, I'm going to pull out the term from the NIV, God's elect, the strangers, the aliens, God's elect. Now, originally this term was applied to God's chosen people, the Jews. And in some biblical passages, it still does. But now... Peter is referring to Gentiles as now being part of God's chosen ones. We have been grafted in to the vine. We are God's children through Jesus Christ. And so we are now also considered God's elect, which is pretty cool, which means God voted for you. He elected you. You were running for child of God and you've been elected. Not because you're worthy, not because you've done anything good enough, but because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And when you put your faith in him, guess what? You become the friend of God. He says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Then he also refers to them as strangers, aliens, sojourners, exiles, foreign residents. And the word stranger and all those other words that apply is applied to those who settle in a town or region without making it their permanent place of residence. To put it another way, as has been often said as believers, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. The readers of Peter's letter whose true citizenship was in heaven, are viewed as temporary residents of the provinces of Asia Minor that are named in this verse, Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he refers to them as being scattered. The Greek word is diasporas. And like the Jews, to whom now they and we have been joined in Christ, these Gentile believers were scattered throughout the known world. And so, just like the parable of the sower, God scatters his people like seed over all the earth. Again, there's a, there's a downside to the diaspora. The Jews were cast out of their land for disobedience, but in the process, they took their faith with them all over the world. The faith in the same God that you and I believe in, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in many instances, intermarried with Gentiles. As I said a few years ago when we were over in the other building there, I think we were studying Romans, but I talked about the fact that God has the last laugh because there's so much anti-Semitism in the world and every time you think it's been squashed down, it rises up again. And by the way, it is rising up even as we speak. The joke is on us, people. It's quite possible that just about everybody on the planet has some Jewish blood in them because of the diaspora. That cracks me up. I mean, they say Hitler was half Jewish, right? And yet, what did he do? He killed six million Jews. All right. Scattered. Verse 2. Elect. God's elect. Strangers. Scattered. And then we see the word here used in the New King James in verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Notice election and foreknowledge go hand in hand. People struggle. The Calvinists teach that you're either chosen or you're not, and if you're not, you're out of luck. Therefore, they put very little emphasis on evangelism because if you're chosen, you're going to get saved, and if you're not, you won't. It's, it's strictly uh, by the will of God and an act of God. They call it irresistible grace, which means if you're chosen, you're going to get saved whether you want to or not. And if you're not chosen, you couldn't be saved even if you wanted to. That's Calvinism in a nutshell. Does that sound biblical to you? No. And yet 60-some-odd percent of our churches in America today are Calvinist. Does that surprise you? And by the way, Calvinism and anti-Semitism go hand in hand because they believe the Jews are no longer part of God's elect. It's called replacement theology that Gentile believers have replaced the Jews. It's all woven together, folks, and it's all part of Satan's strategy for the end times. And the, the end result is the apostasy, the great falling away, because when you reject God's love for Israel and for the Jews, when you begin to believe that God's promises are no longer eternal, that God can undo a promise, that God can break a promise, who's to say he's not going to break one to the Gentiles as well? You see? It's a problem. Now, those Calvinists, I guess they love God, they love Jesus, but I think their doctrine has some big problems. And we see the fruit, we see the... the out. And by the way, this uh, once saved, always saved is part of Calvinism. And it leads people to believe you can go out and sin and do anything you want because I'm eternally secure in Christ. I'll tell you, that's another thing the Bible does not teach. 
Well, you are eternally secure in Christ, but what does it mean to be in Christ? It means you're following God. It means you're obeying God. You're not deliberately practicing a life of sin. We all stumble in many ways. We, we fall short. We make mistakes. But we are called upon to immediately confess our sins and repent that God may restore us into right relationship with Him. And when people willingly choose to walk away and do their own thing, I don't think anybody on this planet can guarantee that person that they're going to wind up in heaven. And ask that person, and they'll tell you, I don't know. Jesus did not die on the cross so your salvation could be in doubt. Amen. But neither did he die on the cross so you could flaunt your sin in front of him. Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God's grace is always more than enough to cover sin. But Paul says, well then, gee, if that's the case, I'm paraphrasing, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, shouldn't we sin more so we get more grace? He says, no, God forbid. But that's the attitude that is produced by this once saved, always saved Calvinistic mentality that once you've prayed the sinner's prayer, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He told the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you, now go and sin no more. He didn't say, well, lady, you're saved now, so if you want to go sleep around, go for it. Is that what he said? Absolutely not. All right. The elect or chosen. As I said, election and foreknowledge are hand in hand. In other words, does God know everything? Is God restricted by space and time? No. That means before this world was even created, he knew that you would accept Christ. He knew that you would accept Christ. And he also knew who wouldn't. Is that too big for God to know? Therefore, he chooses you. He elects you upon the basis of his foreknowledge. But you know what? I don't have that foreknowledge. You don't have that foreknowledge. Therefore, it behooves us to tell everybody. God knows their heart. He knows whether they will choose him or not. But we're called to tell everybody. And everybody has a choice. That's where man's free will and God's sovereignty intersect. No, God will not force you to be saved if you don't want to be. And he will not reject you. All those who come to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. It's very dangerous, in my opinion, to put people in a box and say, well, they're chosen and they're not, so forget them. Only God knows. God knows who he chose based upon whom he knew would choose him. Okay? Salvation is not a random, arbitrary process. Each believer, again, I love this. This is like saying he voted for you. Each believer is handpicked by God himself. But again, it's based upon the fact that he knows you're going to choose him. Notice here too, to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we read about the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification means to be set apart. When you become a believer, when you accept Christ, you're justified. That's justification, which means just as if I'd never sinned. We talk about God says, I'll remember your sins no more. I'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. 
That's justification. Sanctification is when God chooses you and you choose him, you are justified, but you're also sanctified. You are set apart for God's holy purposes. That's sanctification. You're set apart by God. And so the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, so that's one of the jobs of the Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to set us apart for God's holy purposes. We're set apart from the world. The Spirit begins to work inside of you and He tells you, no, no, you don't do that anymore. You don't go to that place anymore. You don't talk like that anymore. And so forth. Because we've been set apart for God's holy purposes. And then we have the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. But I want to back up for just a moment because I've got some really cool verses here about foreknowledge. First of all, the scriptures tell us that God knew us from birth. Psalm 139.13 You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Sounds like more than a fetus. Sounds like a person. Uh, The human heartbeat can be detected at five and a half weeks. And yet those from Planned Parenthood and other groups like them will not identify that baby as a baby or a human being. They call it a fetus. It's a piece of biological tissue. I think I believe God, not them. Psalm 22.10, I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Wow. You see, God's foreknowledge, knowing before the beginning of time that you were going to choose him, and then he elected you, he chose you, that means when you were in the womb, he was already your God. Even before you knew it. And for those of you here today that are believers, I suspect that's the large percentage, if not everybody. You can look back over your life and even before you accepted Christ, now that your spiritual eyes have been opened, your spiritual ears have been opened, back in the recesses of your mind, you know that you knew. Am I right? Before you admitted it, before you confessed it, before you prayed to receive him, now you know you already knew. Right? Am I right? That's a pretty powerful spiritual revelation, isn't it? Gave me some chills if you want to know the truth. You know that you knew. Now you know that you knew. Before you knew, you knew. From birth, and even beyond that, from eternity past, Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He chose us in Him. In other words, the Father chose us in the Son, because that's the only way you can get to the Father. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, the sanctification of the Spirit, we've talked about that. But let me put it to you another way. If Jesus is the good shepherd, and He is, then the Holy Spirit is like the sheepdog. Separating out, sanctifying, and setting apart those that belong to God. Do you see that? 
Jesus is the good shepherd. Holy Spirit's the sheepdog. Separating them out. Sanctifying them. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Gee, that ought to be a no-brainer, shouldn't it? And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever watched somebody try to say it and they couldn't say it? I've seen it. Jesus is Lord. They can't say it because they're not born again. And then we have for obedience. Let me read the the New American Standard Bible here. That you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. God has chosen us. Why did he choose us? That we might become obedient to his son and be cleansed from our sins by his precious blood. Matthew 28.30. We finished off last week. Our 28.20, I'm sorry. This was the last verse of our last teaching in the book of Matthew. Teaching them, go and make disciples of all nations, remember? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe, which means to obey, all things that I've commanded you. The original 11. Teach everybody else to obey all the things that I've commanded you. And then we found those are recorded for us in the Gospels. So we're chosen before the foundations of the world to be set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit and that we would come into obedience. You see, being a Christian is not just a name tag. It's a lifestyle marked by obedience to God. And then again, grace to you. He says, this is the first of 10 mentions of of grace in this letter. God's unmerited favor. And boy, Peter understood that, didn't he? And peace be multiplied. And I would say one of the greatest promises that Jesus has given us is that of peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The world's idea of peace is an absence or lack of conflict. God's peace goes much deeper than that. It's an inner peace. Knowing you're at peace with God. You're no longer at war with God. You're no longer his enemy, but you're now his friend. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And yet, how often do we do that? We do sometimes let. Notice he says, let not. Did you realize becoming troubled and being afraid is a choice? Did you know that? We talk about choice a lot around here. Just about everything in life has to do with choices, and yet the brainwashing of the world system masterminded by Satan, it's all designed to convince you that you don't have any choices about anything. That you're a victim of circumstances. You're under the circumstances. You're being propelled through life by forces outside of your control. But in Christ, the Holy Spirit has control. And you have a choice. And you don't have to be troubled. And you don't have to be afraid. And when you begin to feel those things creeping in, you need to get with God. And you need to get with believers that can encourage you and pray for you. When you think about it, you know, we talk about our children and, how, and we talked earlier about the whole educational problem in our nation. I forget what it was. There was this huge percentage of, it's like eighth graders or something, that didn't know how to read a clock. It was like eight out of ten or something can't read a clock. Your tax dollars at work, folks. Aren't you happy? Aren't you thankful? 
Now, how was I going to tie that in? <laughs> I got caught up in it. Anyway, it was good, but it left. <laughs> now, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It's a choice. Oh, I know what it was because, again, you think about at least for nine months out of the year, the schools have your kids for what, eight hours a day? Okay, so they get home 3.30, 4 o'clock, play around a little bit, whatever they do, do their homework, have dinner, and then if they go to bed by 8 or 9. Who had your kids the majority of the day? The brainwashers. That tells you how hard you're going to have to work to counteract all that. The same thing is true. Now again, each of us has a personal responsibility to spend time with God in prayer, in the Word. But let's be honest, for most people, uh, the largest portion of you know, in-depth quality time with other believers and, and Bible study happens in church for most people. And so you, like your kids, they're being bombarded all day every day by the things that the public school system is foisting upon them. You're being bombarded all day in your job, in your neighborhood, whatever, wherever you are, whatever you're involved with. And then for most, I have one opportunity on Sunday morning. See, I used to embrace this idea that, well, you know, Sunday morning is the entry point for most people. And so we want to put our best foot forward and we want to, you know, win them over and then we can try to get them into other uh, areas like a midweek Bible study, men's group, women's group, and then we can begin to disciple them and bring them along. But the truth of the matter is, I don't. We don't get that opportunity with most people. The largest crowd we have is here on Sunday mornings, and so I was never seeker friendly. But there were elements of that mentality in my thinking, in that, well, we don't want to do anything to turn them off. Well, you know what? This may be the only chance I get to talk to you, so I'm going to take the risk. And if you get turned off, oh well, I'm sorry. It's not my goal to turn you off, but the truth has a way of turning people off. Basically, it'll turn you on or it'll turn you off. I'm just going to focus on the ones that are turned on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Does that sound harsh? I don't mean it to be, but I can't focus on somebody who's turned off and doesn't want to hear what I have to say anyway. That's a waste of time. That's like God choosing those who chose him. You see? It would make no sense for God to choose those that he knows aren't going to choose him. Okay, so verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Boy, Peter's got some deep stuff here, doesn't he? We see his maturity. We see what an amazing man of God he's become. Let me read it from the New American Standard Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. I love that. Has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now this blessed be God can be translated praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins his letter of encouragement in a way similar to the Lord's Prayer, honoring God first, Matthew 6, 9. Jesus taught him to pray in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy is your name. 
And so Peter gives his introduction, talks about what God has done for us, the sanctification and so forth, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, being chosen, being elected. And then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He also is once again affirming the doctrine of the Trinity and hence the deity of Christ because he mentions God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that God is Jesus' dad. Jesus is God's son. Therefore, he is deity. He is God. And then he mentions God's abundant mercy. What is mercy? We know that grace is getting what we don't deserve. God's unmerited favor. Mercy is the other side of the same coin. It's not getting what we do deserve. Peter certainly had first-hand knowledge of this. He betrayed Christ three times on the night of Jesus' arrest, three times before the cock crowed, remember? I mean, arguably, his, his betrayal was just as dastardly as that of Judas. The only difference is Peter repented and he received mercy. He received grace and mercy. Judas went out and hanged himself. And it tells us here that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again or caused us to be born again. Again, he doesn't force us to be born again, but since he is our creator, only God can give us new birth. The first time we're born, we're born in sin. We're condemned to death and punishment, separated from God for all eternity. But John 3, 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so when we reach out to him, he's already reached out to us through his son, Jesus Christ. When we reach out to him and take hold of his hand, he causes us to be born again. Oswald Chambers said, In new birth, God does three impossible things. The first is to make a man's past as though it had never been. Do you look back sometimes on your life before Christ and it just seems like a whole different person? It's because it was. It was like a, a dream, not necessarily a good dream. In some cases, a downright nightmare. But it just seems like it was somebody else because it was. The second miracle is to make man all over again. Paul says we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the third miracle, to make a man as certain of God as God is of himself. That's called, I know that I know that I know. When God saves you, when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, when you're born again, you know God. You are just as certain of God as God is of himself. So, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Because the one in whom we place our hope is alive. He is risen. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, Paul says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now we go to verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first one to rise from the dead never to die again. And we will follow. For since by man came death, Adam, by man also, big M this time, little M, Adam, big M, man, the son of man, 
By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So our hope is a living hope. We're not putting our hope in some dead guy like the Muslims who put their hope in Muhammad, the Buddhists who put their hope in Confucius, the Hindus who put their hope in Krishna. They're all dead. It's a dead hope. They're deadheads. And they're not grateful. They might think they are. They won't be. We have a living hope. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he purchased our redemption. It is his resurrection that gives us the sure hope, the living hope of eternal life. It's not enough to believe he was a good man, a good teacher. We must believe he is risen. Okay, verse 4. That's our final verse today. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Inheritance. What is an inheritance? It's wealth that someone else has accumulated and passed along to you at their death. Hebrews 1.2 God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. So God the Father has given all things to Jesus his Son. He in turn died on the cross and left it all to us. But then he rose again, so we all get to enjoy it together. His word is like a will. Did you know that? Stating exactly what has been left to us, his heirs. Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, chosen. And if children, then heirs. Who are your heirs? First and foremost, primarily your kids, right? Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Uh Uh-oh, what? I I just wanted the goodies. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. God's promises are sure and certain, and they're awesome, and they're eternal. But guess what? He said in this life, there will be suffering, and we are willing to endure that for eternal reward. Are we? We should be. incorruptible and undefiled. An inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled means unstained by evil. You know you can have a pantry full of wonderful foods, delicacies, great stuff, but in time it'll spoil, right? You've got to use it up. We can lavish ourselves with beautiful clothes, luxurious furnishings, but in time they will begin to fray and unravel. The treasures stored up for us in heaven are eternal, They are incorruptible and undefiled. So why should we put all our resources into the things of this world that do not last? Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Peter tells us that we have an inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. And it does not fade away, meaning it is unimpaired by time. That beautiful new car, that boat, that motorhome, that $1,000 Armani suit, which I haven't seen around here lately, (laughs) either up here or down there. The only one that even comes close is Dave Moss. And he's casual today. 
Every time I see him in that coat and tie, I say, Dave, I, I think you should preach today. I'll even give you my notes, Dave. Just go for it. That Ivanka Trump dress, ladies, which are very smart and reasonably priced. Uh-oh. I better call Kellyanne Conway. I'm in trouble. Kellyanne, what do I do? All these will fade in time. Right? Isaiah 40, verse 8 says it really well. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And where is this inheritance? It's right here now. Glory! (laughs) Reverend Ike. You can have your pie in the sky now with ice cream on top. <laughs> Boy, that gets people stirred up. <laughs> however, however, reserved in heaven for you, the imperishable, incorruptible, eternal rewards that do not fade away are not here on this earth. I'm afraid there's a lot of people going to be very disappointed. But you won't be disappointed if you realize that here and now comes the suffering. I mean, there are many blessings. God is great. We've all had a lot of wonderful moments in our lives and we've had some trials and tribulations. But the treasures, the rewards, the inheritance that Peter speaks of is reserved in heaven for you. The Greek here, by the way, is in the perfect tense, indicating that our inheritance has already been put in safekeeping and continues there. It's a good thing, I would say, that Dad is holding on to it for us. Remember the prodigal son? See, normally you don't get your inheritance till the dad dies. The prodigal son didn't want to wait. So in essence, he was saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. But since you're not, I want my pie in the sky now with ice cream on top. Well, the loving, gracious father gave him his inheritance and what did he do? He went out and squandered and he wound up with the pigs in the mud. It's a good thing dad's holding on to our inheritance for us. The real, true, greatest rewards are those that await us in heaven. And Peter wants all believers everywhere of every generation to know that God has amazing, incredible, tremendous rewards in safekeeping for all those who hang in there and endure until we see Jesus face to face. I think we're going to have a good time in this book. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Peter. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you did not hide from us his flaws, but also we just see the amazing man of God that he became. It's revealed to us in the Scriptures And it's revealed to us through his own writings. Lord, he's a guy that we can all relate to in many ways. And he has tremendous wisdom to impart to us. So we thank you for this new study. And we pray that you'd be working in our hearts and minds each week as we study the next portion of this epistle of 1 Peter. And Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who has not yet experienced being born again, being set apart, sanctified, justified, someone who is not not yet one of your heirs. Lord, all they have to do is say the word and they can become a joint heir with Christ. And they can be a participant 
and all those amazing, wonderful, eternal rewards that await us in heaven. So Lord, we ask that for anyone today that doesn't know you, you draw them to yourself. Lord, anyone maybe who has been drifting away, that you would be the good shepherd that you are and bring in the lost sheep back into the fold. Lord, whatever anyone's going through today, you know, you understand, you know and understand better than anyone else. You're the God of all comfort. You're the God of compassion, love, grace, and mercy. So we pray that anyone troubled today in any way, for any reason, would come and receive prayer and allow you to minister to them through your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.